Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Paula Pett. Paula's episode is the latest in a series of podcast shows on women in real estate. In the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing successful female real estate investors to help encourage and inspire more women to get into real estate. Paula is the founder of the award-winning website Afford Anything and a writer and speaker specializing in money, business, and real estate investing. At age 34, she owns eight homes. Through her rental properties, she has been able to achieve financial independence and leave her 9-to-5 job. In my interview with Paula, we discuss Paula's rags-to-riches story, metrics to determine if a property is a good investment, and tips for working with a property manager. Without further ado, here's my interview with Paula Pan. Hi Paula, how are you doing today? I'm excellent, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, thanks. Uh, looking forward to another exciting discussion on real estate. Oh, I am too. It's one of my favorite topics. Well, let's get started then. Your story is quite remarkable and inspirational. Tell us about your rags to riches story. All right. Well, I mean, so regs, I suppose, is always a, a relative term, but I, uh, my, I'm uh, the child of immigrants. So my parents immigrated to the U.S. from Kathmandu, Nepal, and I was born in Kathmandu, but I came to the U.S. as a baby. We, we definitely didn't have any family money, right? Like growing up, we were, we were relatively new immigrants. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and so she spent a lot of time clipping coupons and, um, you know, just, just being very, very frugal. So I think I learned a lot of frugality through them. They were always very price conscious. They were always, you know, double checking receipts at the grocery store to make sure that everything rung up the way it was supposed to. They, they always did things like that. So I learned uh, frugality and I learned a lot of attention to money from their example. And then I went to college. Uh, when I graduated from college, I graduated in 2005, and I got a job as a newspaper reporter, and my starting salary was $21,000 per year, and that was in 2005. I worked at that newspaper for three years, and at the time that I quit, which was in 2008, my salary at, the t- at that time was 31000 a year, and that's the highest amount that I ever made working for somebody else, working for another employer. So I never made a lot of money when I was in the the traditional workforce, and I got the sense that I could probably do better if I struck out on my own. So that was what I decided to do. I I quit my job in 2008 and decided to become a full-time freelancer, become self-employed, and then plow the money from that into investments. I figured doing that, I could probably go further than I could trying to find a job, at least in my industry. And how did you find it at first? Uh, did you see immediate success or did it take you a while to get your freelancing business off the ground? 
Uh, while I was at the newspaper, I started freelancing on the side during the evenings and weekends. And so that was what gave me the experience as well as the confidence to feel like I could. You know, so I began freelancing while I was still at the paper. And so then when I quit, uh, I, when I quit my job, at first I went and traveled for about two years and sort of bummed around and didn't really do much of anything. And I came back to the United States in 2010. And at that point, that was when I committed myself fully to this full-time self-employment. Uh, and it took probably about a year and a half to between a year and a half to two years before that really became a robust amount of money. Yeah. So for the first several months I was scraping by like, you know, a four or $500 check landing a new client that would have paid four or $500 per month was at that time a very, very big deal. Like getting that extra 400 a month was a huge deal back then. And so it, it took about 18 months-ish of just slowly accumulating clients, repeat clients, before I had accumulated enough of them that I was making good money. Well, it's definitely inspirational for anyone else looking to escape the nine-to-five grind and go off on their own and make their side hustle a full-time job. So congratulations on your success. Thank you. Great. So coming up with the down payment can be tough. How did you manage to come up with your down payment and any tips for others struggling to save? Sure. So as I was freelancing, uh, I was living in a apartment that I was sharing with a bunch of random people from Craigslist. So there were a total of five people splitting a three-bedroom apartment, a 1,200-square-foot three-bedroom apartment between five people. And that apartment was located inside of a triplex building. And I noticed that the triplex across the street was for sale. And I should say, when, when I was doing that, my personal share of the rent was $200 per month. So um, I was paying $200 a month in rent. And I noticed that the triplex across the street was for sale. And it, it, I kind of reasoned, without really knowing how to analyze a property, without knowing anything about rentals, I reasoned that perhaps if I bought it, and moved all of my roommates with me into it and, you know, rented out the other two units and then lived in the third unit with all of my roommates, that maybe I would be able to get my own housing costs down to zero. So my ambition at the time was no bigger than, oh, maybe I could get my housing costs from 200 a month down to zero a month. Like that was as big as I was thinking. <laughs> well, like I said, because I was paying rent of $200 a month, and I was driving a 15-year-old car, and I was eating mostly vegetarian meals from Costco at home, you know, I wasn't really spending a lot of money. And so because I was already living this life of extreme frugality that was, in the beginning, driven by necessity, but then as I, my freelance business grew and as I continued to earn more, I just kept living the way that I had to live out of necessity. I just kept doing that even as my income grew. And so for me, the way that I was able to save that down payment was developing a freelance career, like developing a, a solid self-employment career. Because I, I, at the end of the day, there are only two levers that you can pull. You can either earn more or you can spend less. And what matters is the gap between the two. And when you're already living a college student or less than college student life, you can't really frugal down any further than that, not in any reasonable manner. And so for me, where I was at that point in my life, the only lever that I could pull was to earn more. 
And I'm just curious to come up with an actual down payment. Did you set yourself a certain goal in terms of how much money that you wanted to have saved for a down payment or what was your exact strategy to actually come up with that uh, pot of money to be able to purchase a property? Oh, I was already just saving, not for any particular goal, but I was just saving as much as I possibly could. So by the time that I noticed that that triplex across the street was for sale, I, we made a down payment of $26,000. Um, that was the total amount out of pocket. So, and that was between my, my partner at the time and I. So by the time that we found that triplex across the street, we already had that. Okay, awesome. And for most people, the family home is their first investment in real estate, but that's not the only way to invest in real estate. Talk about creative ways you've invested in real estate. And of course, you've mentioned one, but perhaps you could talk about creative ways you've done it or you've heard other people invest in real estate. Sure. Well, first of all, I don't believe that a person's primary residence or personal residence is an investment. Uh, I believe that your personal residence is a personal expenditure and maybe it might be an expenditure that happens to go up in value while you live there, but it's not an investment because you're not running a profit and loss statement on it. You're not judging it based on the ROI when you buy it. So there's a big difference between a personal property versus an investment property. I think the most unique thing that I did was I never bought a personal residence for myself until I had seven rental units. So I went from being a renter directly to being a landlord. And then I accumulated seven rental property units. And only after that did I ever buy a personal home that was purely for myself, like a, a, a home that was purchased not based on the cash flow that it could produce, but purely based on the desire to live there. Um, I think that was the single most unique thing that I've done. And so as I mentioned, that first property that I bought uh, was a triplex where I moved in with my roommates rented out two units, moved into the third with a bunch of my roommates and got my own housing costs down to zero. That was the first thing that I did. And from that point forward, I just kept buying rentals. I easily could have said, well, maybe it's time for me to be quote unquote, be a grown up and quote unquote, buy a home for my own. But I just continued living with roommates until I, I had a net worth of over a million dollars by the time I stopped living with roommates. Oh and goodness. that's and that's why, you know, like the only reason that I became a millionaire is because I just lived like a college student until I had a seven-figure net worth. That's quite a unique way to reach a seven-figure net worth, but certainly it worked for you. So kudos to that. Thank you. Great. So you're 34 years old and you own eight houses. Quite an impressive feat. How did you manage to accomplish all of that at a young age? And how can others follow in your footsteps? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, the first thing that I would say is while, while owning eight homes is a good headline, it's a good talking point, what matters ultimately is not the number of homes that you own, but rather the cap rate and the cash flow that come from those homes. And that's another way of saying the return on investment that you're getting from those homes. I would much rather have fewer homes with amazing cash flow than I would have a whole bunch of homes with marginal cash flow. So that's the first thing that I would say to anybody listening who is setting their own real estate related goals. It's not about the number of homes you own. It's about how well each property performs. And ideally, the fewer the better, because that way you have fewer toilets, 
you have fewer kitchens, you have fewer roofs, you know, you just have fewer things to maintain. As far as to the, the second part of your question, how did I accomplish all of this at a young age? It's the combination of living like a college student while also doubling down at work and earning a six-figure income. And I think that to overfocus on on either one of those is to only tell half the story. There are many people who like to spin it as though frugality is the answer. But the thing is, if you live on a budget of $2,000 per month, but you only make $2,100 per month, then you're not really going to get anywhere. And likewise, if you make 12000 a month and you also spend 12000 a month, you're also not going to go anywhere. So the way to make it happen is to make 12000 a month, but live on 2000 and save the difference. And so that's why I'm a, I'm a big fan of what I refer to as minding the gap, meaning that you know, you can earn more, you can spend less. What matters is the gap between the two. So your job is to make that gap as wide as possible. Great advice. I guess if more Canadians follow that advice, then half of us wouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck. So certainly a great lesson there. And I'm just curious, you mentioned one of the metrics that you use when purchasing an investment property, but are there any other things that you look at to decide whether it's a good property to go ahead and purchase? Sure. Uh, The primary metric that I look at is something that's called cap rate or capitalization rate. And I have an article on my blog on affordanything.com that that goes into detail about exactly how to calculate that. But essentially, the cap rate shows you the type of dividend or the type of income stream that you would get on that property. It shows you, absent of any financing considerations, it shows you the type of income that you would get on a property relative to the value of the property. So it's a very good way of, of assessing the property itself. I think that one mistake a lot of real estate investors make is that they often conflate the performance of the property with the quality of the financing arrangement. So I actually don't believe in looking at cash on cash return. Uh, And I know that's very controversial. A lot of people are big fans of that. I say in terms of cash on cash return, don't even worry about it because that is a question of financing. It's not a question of how well the property itself performs. And so that's the number one thing that I do when I evaluate properties is I put all financing questions to the side and I look at the property itself from the assumption that I were to own it in cash, what kind of income stream would it produce? And if that looks good, then we can start dealing with the financing. My quick back of the envelope metric that I use is something that's called the 1% rule of When I say rule, I don't mean it's like a hard and fast, you know, strict rule, but the 1% rule is a sort of first pass sorting mechanism when I'm looking at a big basket of properties. And that, uh, the 1% rule asks the question, does the gross monthly rent equal 1% of the purchase price of the property? And so for every $100,000 of home, the property needs to rent for at least $1,000 a month. If it's a $200,000 home, it needs to rent for $2,000 a month. A $300,000 home needs to rent for $3,000 a month. Now, if there isn't something like that in the city where you live, then don't invest in an expensive place where the price-to-rent ratios are not landlord-friendly. Invest where the money is. Right now, I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. All of my properties are in Atlanta, Georgia. So I live 2,000 miles away from my properties. Um, so the fact that you happen to live somewhere is not a qualifying criteria for buying a property there. 
go where the properties are cheap, go where properties meet the 1% rule. There are lots of places in the U.S. where uh, properties meet the 1% rule, especially in the, in the Midwestern and Southern regions of the U.S., tons and tons of options. So that's what I would recommend. Yeah, definitely. And for people listening in major cities in Canada, cities like Vancouver and Toronto, there are satellite cities around where you can't actually afford to buy in the city. Perhaps look at buying an investment property in one of the satellite cities and try running some of the numbers that Paula suggested and see if it makes sense to purchase the property. That's what I would suggest. Great. So you didn't just buy properties. You rolled up your sleeves and got dirty. Talk about spending your weekends renovating your homes and why it was worth it. Mm, we did this a lot for uh, both the first and the second property. Uh, and it was because we didn't have very much money. So we didn't have a budget for doing renovations and so or a large budget for doing renovations. And so every weekend from Friday afternoon through late Sunday night, we were hands-on renovating the properties ourselves. And in hindsight, I think that was a mistake. Uh, if I could go back and do it again, I would have more aggressively looked for sources of funding, more aggressively looked for loans that would have allowed us to hire that out. And then I would have, instead of spending 20 hours a week DIY renovating, do-it-yourself renovating, I instead would have spent that same 20 hours a week trying to buy more properties, aggressively looking for funding and financing and aggressively trying to buy more properties. And I think that if I had done that at that time, I would be much, much further ahead today. And so my attempts to save money by doing the work myself ended up, you know, they saved money in the short term, but they ended up being much more expensive in the long term in terms of opportunity cost. I guess penny wise, pound foolish, as they say, but I guess it was hard to tell, um, like hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. So even if I had spent that time, I mean, even if I was a little bit more debt averse and I didn't want to spend that time aggressively looking for more financing, at a minimum, if I had spent that time aggressively building my business, earning more in my primary occupation, even that uh, would have carried me further. You know, when I'm doing work that could be hired out at $20 an hour, I mean, at that time in my life, 20 an hour was, you know, decent, but you're not going to get further. When you own your own business, as I did, or when you're self-employed, you have to value your time not based on what you currently earn, but based on what you hope to earn within the next couple of years. Otherwise, you're not going to get there. And so that was, I think, a, a big mistake that I made is I valued my time either at zero or at best at what I was making then. And the drawback to that is that you then lose the compounding gains that come from putting those hours into your business, into growing your business. Because yes, certainly there's only a limited amount of time. And I guess as we get older, we don't have as much energy as we used to when we're younger. So certainly we should make the most of our time. And if it means hiring somebody to do work or even hiring somebody to do cleaning around the house, if you have a better way that you could use your time, then it might make sense for some people. So that's great advice. What are some lessons that you've learned from being a landlord? And do you have any tips to offer for picking good tenants? Sure. In terms of being a landlord, um, as I said, for, for many, many years, I lived uh, in the same home as my tenants. My, my tenants were also my roommates or my housemates. And that is a little bit of a tricky situation to navigate because for a couple of reasons, right? Like being housemates with your tenants 
it, it really blurs the line, right? They become your friends, but then they're late on a rent payment and then you have to be their landlord. So that was a little awkward sometimes, just in terms of, of blurring that line between landlord and roommate. Uh, in terms of the houses in which I, I wasn't roommates, you know, in terms of the, the houses in which it was a much cleaner relationship where that's a separate house, those are my tenants, I'm their landlord, and we have no other relationship besides that, uh, that was much easier, much easier to navigate. So uh, because the roles are more clear and the expectations are more clear. Uh, in terms of tips for picking good tenants, make everybody fill out an application. Uh, have a standard application and, and have everybody fill that out and have certain minimum requirements. So for example, and I'm not saying that these should be yours, but this is just a hypothetical example, you might decide that you require that their income is three times more than the monthly rent. Or you might require that they have a credit score over some number or that they have some number of years at the same employer. Decide what your standards are ahead of time and hold everybody to those to that set of standards. I'm curious, do you ever go on gut feel or are you more of a numbers person? I would think you're more of a numbers person. I, I would only go on gut feel if there was some reasonable exception. Like, for example, I had one applicant who had a, a damaged credit, but it was that damaged credit was only because he had owned a, a home that got foreclosed on. And so when you looked at his credit report, everything else was really good. You know, every other credit card and every other debt that he owed, he always made on-time payments. He just had this one incident, this one major blemish that caused his credit score to tank. Uh, and so in that case, even though his credit score was bad, when you actually dug through the details of the history, you saw that he has a great history of making on-time payments, except for this one big thing. So in that case, yeah, I approved him and he was a fantastic tenant. He lived in the home for about two years. That's great to hear. Now, you don't oversee all the properties yourself. What has it been like working with a property manager? Because I would imagine that some of the listeners have considered working with one. Oh, it's excellent. I highly recommend it. Uh, so I've been through two different property management companies. One of them was terrible and the other one is excellent. The number one tip that I would give you is is hire slow and fire fast. <laughs> if, if you start to develop reservations about your property manager, let go of them. The mistake that I made with the property manager that was bad was I kept giving them the benefit of the doubt. I kept giving them one more chance. And I should have just cut the cord as soon as I started getting those initial reservations. By contrast, the property manager that's excellent is just, they do a much better job than, than I could. And it's been just, everything's been 10 times easier working with them. That's great to hear. Now, through your investment properties, you've been able to achieve financial freedom and leave your full-time job. Talk about what life has been like since leaving your nine-to-five job. Sure. Well, to be clear, I left my nine-to-five job long before I achieved financial freedom. I left the nine-to-five job when I was making $31,000 a year, and I didn't own a home, and I had just sold my car, so I didn't even own a car, right? <laughs> like, I had no assets, really, uh, and not much. So I quit my job because I had been working full-time for three years, and I was making $31,000, and I had no realistic opportunities for advancement or growth. And I realized this is a dead end. There's got to be something better than this. And I bet that if I just went out on my own, I could figure out how to do it 
better well, for myself. I was different than the standard story in that I quit my job first, became self-employed, and then as my self-employment income began to grow and it began to take off, rather than in increasing my lifestyle as my income grew, I held to that same low-income lifestyle that I had always had and just invested everything that I was making. So yeah, so I think my story is very different because you don't actually need financial freedom to leave your nine-to-five job. I'm living proof of that. I left my nine-to-five job before I even knew the concept of financial freedom. You can leave your nine-to-five at any time. It's just less stressful once you have some assets that are bringing in passive income. Totally. So look to buy a good property like yourself to kind of start your real estate empire, so to speak, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm a big fan of owning rental properties because they're a great source of passive income and that passive income provides a safety net. Totally. Well, Paula, it's been great having you on the show. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. Well, you can find my blog at affordanything.com and my podcast is called the Afford Anything Podcast. So search for that on any major podcast player like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Google Play. And then I also have a course coming out Um, It's a course on rental property investing. It's called Your First Rental Property. Uh, And it is not available yet, but if you go to affordanything.com slash VIP list, you can sign up to get updates about it. And we have a free seven-day email series for anybody who signs up that's a deep dive into rental property investing. So affordanything.com slash VIP list to sign up for that. Great. And I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. So Thanks so much for being on the show. It was wonderful to have you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice, or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.